I'm going to invite all of you all to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes is right after Proverbs, right in the middle of your Bible. Much of this passage you will know from a song that was made famous by the birds and the beetles. But it was written long before they put it to music. Chapter 3, verse 1. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as loss. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent. And a time to speak. A time to love. And a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But no one can discover the work of God, the work God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. And all of us, almost all of us, probably could quote this whole passage because you used two very famous groups 50 years ago to sing it, to put it to music. But Father, I praise you that this word is your word and it is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. So I pray, Father, you would speak to us today through your word, bring encouragement bring strength, bring conviction of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. May you lift up the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, be our teacher, be our guide. Touch us and transform us. I thank you, Jesus, that you lift up the brokenhearted. You do not snuff out the flickering flame. You do not destroy the bruised reed but you lift us up and you call us to come to your feet and to lay our burdens at your feet. So move now, speak through me, only my words, nothing else, so that your name, Jesus, is glorified. And we ask these things in your name. Amen and amen. Oh, one more prayer. And Father, too, for Andrew and his friend, who's, he's had numerous gospel conversations. Father, open those doors. May this dear man repent. May he see you, Jesus, clearly. May he give his life to you and become one of our dear brothers in you, Christ. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.
You may be seated. Oh, wait, no. You may be seated. <laughs> it is a joy seeing each of you all this morning. If you're new, welcome to the church at Woodbine. It is a pleasure having each of you here. And our deep heart's prayer and desire is that you would truly sense our Heavenly Father's love. His love is eternal. It's new every morning. And there are not words enough to express how much He loves you. And He's calling you to Himself this day to be His son, to be His daughter. Today we're going to be looking here in Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. But real quick, i got a question. How many of you all, fall is your favorite season of the year? Raise your hand if fall is your favorite season of the year. Okay, a few. Man, bummer. This is the best time of year. Okay, winter. Who loves winter? Winter is your favorite time of year. One or two. Spring. I'm just going to raise my hand the whole time. Summer. Okay, fall again. Fall. All right. I love fall. In fact, the past, we've had like a really amazing month of fall weather. And for us, over the past four months, if you want to ask what the weather is like for where we lived in Mexico, it's almost like today, maybe 10 degrees warmer, not a cloud in the sky. But I love fall here. Where we live, there are hardly any trees, so we didn't get to enjoy all the season change and all the leaves changing and all that. And about two, three months ago, as we were starting Life Group, Vera was walking up the stairs, and when we had went through that two months where it didn't rain, and she says, if it doesn't rain soon, I mean, everything's going to be turning brown. And uh, praise the Lord, things are turning. But I love the fall season. I look forward to it. Man, I sweat like a dog. And in the midst of summer, it's awful. And once it hits and once it gets cool and once it gets chilly, it's amazing. But for me, it seems like fall just goes, whoop, and it's over. It flies by. It's like the, jet, the, the booster jets get turned on and it's wintertime. And I love snow. But I'll be honest with you, by the time we hit January 1st, I'm ready for it to be April. Now, I dread the summer. But by the time we get to March, many of us are like, man, I just wish it would warm up. One of my best friends is from Kansas, where it is, I mean, it will snow there, but it never, hardly ever rains. And when he was at Wheaton College up in Chicago, where it is cold and gray and rainy and snowy from mid-October until the end of April, he really struggled there. He, in fact, even thought about transferring out. Because he said, Doug, I got so depressed by January, I said, I couldn't make it. And when we talk about seasons, and the amazing thing about fall and all its changes, did you know it was 99 degrees on October 1st, I think, this year? And our life group came over for Halloween because we do hot dogs and pass out water to the parents that come with their kids trick-or-treating. And our life group was, was around, and we had the fire pit going, and we're out there freezing because it was like 30 degrees. And Samuel Wegesbach, who's translating in Spanish for the first time, so if you speak Spanish and you want to understand the sermon, we got uh, ear, earphones back there, right there by the sound booth. But Samuel said, he said, did you know October 1st it was 99 degrees? And it was below freezing in October. And I love the fall. And I dread the winter. And as Mel was saying, it's what we're going to talk about over these next three weeks, lament. Seasons of loss. And I found it interesting when I asked, who loves winter? Very few of us raised your hand for winter. Why? It's cold. It's dark. It's dreary. Here in Tennessee, it rarely snows, so we get that 33-degree rain. You can't go outside and play. Everything is bare. The colors are gone. And we just wish, and Sammy loves it. My son Sammy loves it. He'll probably move to Washington State, Seattle, or live in Scotland. 
But for most of us, by the time we get to March, we're like, I'm done with winter. Where's the sunshine? Where's the warm weather? And we wish we could just zip through winter. But you know what? Winter plays a key role in all of our lives. A dear friend of mine, we have some small garden areas around our house, and he told me last year, rake your leaves up and put it on the dirt. I was like, why? He's like, duh. He's like, those leaves will disintegrate. They'll, they'll, nutri- they'll uh, bring nutrition to the ground. It also will protect the soil from going way too dry and drying out. And during that time when the land remains fallow, that land is replenishing itself with nutrients, and it's restoring itself to produce more and better fruit. And the same is true for us when we go through winter seasons of the soul. And I'm not talking about the winter season of our life when we're old. I'm talking about those seasons in life where we feel cold, dry, empty, where all seems dark, all seems at a loss. I know for myself, I hate those times in my life. And the times of loss, loss, I'm a huge, I love to reminisce. And if you've been here long enough, what do I talk about so much of the time? Mexico. Mexico this, Mexico that. And Mexico was hard as nails. There was many times I hated it. And I love Mexicans. But there were many times where it was lonely. But what happens to me and most of us too, when you get to reminisce and you get to thinking about only the good times and you forget about the hard, challenging, difficult times. But the seasons of loss and pain and darkness and depression, what does Scripture have to say about those times? How are we to respond? And let's look at here at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We've already read it. For many theologians and church historians and Bible scholars, many believe that King Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. Now, if you don't know who King Solomon was, he was King David's son. Solomon ruled for 40 years after his, son, after his father David ruled. During the time of Solomon, Israel was still one nation. It was by far the largest it had ever grown as far as geographically. It was wealthy. During the time of Solomon, there were unbelievable building projects throughout the country. And Solomon started out so well when he became king. God anointed him with unbelievable wisdom. But Solomon turned his back on the Lord. And he had over 300 wives. And he began to worship other gods. And he hardened his heart. And he turned from the Lord that by the end of his life, And many theologians will say that he repented, but there's no place in Scripture that we see he truly repented. That's only in the Lord's hands. But by the end of his life, because of the consequences of his sin, the country was torn in two after he died. And his actions caused unbelievable idolatry and wickedness for generations to come. And most theologians would say that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life. He wrote most of Proverbs. He wrote the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, which is an amazing love letter. And then at the end of his life, writing Ecclesiastes. There's a couple characteristics about this book that I want to just highlight very quickly, and I don't want to forget. Ecclesiastes, a couple things to remember. It's poetry by nature. 
And that is very important to understand when we interpret the Scripture, when something is poetic and not historical or literal. It's not an epistle. It's not a letter to the churches. It's in the Old Testament before Christ came. So it's going to have a different perspective. The book of Ecclesiastes is not concerned about ethical questions like just war and death. Solomon does not seek out solutions by seeking the Lord and his word and his way. But he seeks out solutions through his own observations and life experience. Do you guys remember the, that, the West End quadrilateral, the four-sided thing? What was at the bottom? What has to be foundational for us? Scripture. But most of us will put reason and science as foundation or our own experience. And we live in a time and day right now where most of us experience, our personal experience has greater value than reason or Scripture. That is what our culture teaches now. And our life experience is unbelievably important. It's unbelievably important. And we have the question, who are you to tell me how I feel or what I think? And that's true. It's a partial truth because we can't get inside the brain or heart or mind of anyone else. But if we base our life, if we base the philosophy and the goals of our life on our experience, we can become unbelievably deceived or hard-hearted or egocentric. So we need to always be really careful about what the foundation of our life and how we live is. Is it on science, reason, on experience, on tradition, or on Scripture? The whole counsel of Scripture. Here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, and we're not going to go line by line and verse by verse and word by word. We read it. We know this song. I was telling Mel earlier this week, it's like, Mel, is there any way we could sing the song from the Beatles? Eh, eh it's not really a worship song. Yeah, but it's real scriptural. I mean, they would took it word for word. Look at verse 1. There is an occasion for everything and a time for every activity. What word speaks to you most in this verse? As you look at it, what jumps off the screen? Every. Good job, Kim. Everything and every is what came. Everything. And then Solomon lists time for birth, time for die, time to plant, time to uproot, time to kill, a time to heal. And he's just going through what he's observed in life. There is a time and reason for everything. And then if you jump down here to verse 9 or verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Everything. And at the end of these two verses, there's two things that I feel like Solomon is trying to tell us. The first one is this. There is a time and season for everything. That's supposed to be funny. Ah. We live in a world where there is a changing of seasons in our lives. And there is a purpose for everything in life, both good and bad. These changings in our lives are more than just the changes of our age, but of all of our life circumstances and experiences, both good and bad. It is important for us to realize and understand 
that there will be seasons of great joy in our life, but there will also be seasons of great loss, suffering, and grief. One of the greatest challenges I think we face as Christians and dealing with other brothers and sisters is we've communicated to the world, accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and all of your problems will go away. And we try on Jesus and we even preach Jesus and we even tell people about Jesus. And it's one of the challenges we have with gospel conversations is that we communicate to people and what they hear. Man, if I try this Jesus thing on, like I'm going to put on a new coat, if it doesn't fit, they're going to take it off. And one of the things that's challenging, one of the things that we have to communicate to people is that life is hard. And there will be loss. And there will be suffering. And there will be grief regardless if you have the greatest faith on the planet or not. We will suffer, and we will suffer greatly. And Jesus actually was very clear that if we follow him and surrender to him and give our lives to him as Lord and Savior, the world will hate us. Life is hard just in and of itself. But when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're putting a target on our back and on our chest, and we then become enemy number one to Satan. Satan's role, he's a great thief, and his role is to lie, steal, steal, kill, and destroy. And when, we're, when we are born, we are born dead to sin, dead in our trespasses, and we're held bondage and captive to him. But Jesus has broken those chains, and when we give our lives to Christ, he rescues us and he adopts us as his dear sons and daughters, and we become children of light. And we are rescued out of the clutches of sin and death. We are no longer held prisoner to captivity of death, sin, or Satan. And then we become his enemy. And so he launches his attacks against us. And if he can discourage believers by thinking, man, I put my faith in Jesus and all hell broke loose in my life. And we forget so much of the truth of Scripture that there is a time and season for everything both joy and happiness and goodness and fulfillment and loss and pain and struggle and death. The second thing is this. Even if we do not understand the changes or the difficult seasons in our life, nothing is a coincidence or an accident or a random happenstance. There's a phrase we used in Spanish in Mexico, diosidencia. Dios meaning God, a word half of coincidencia, which is coincidence, diosidencia, God thing. Everything is a God thing. Everything has purpose. Even sin, even death, even loss. Scripture is very clear that God will hold us responsible for our decisions. He will hold us accountable for our own actions. He will. But it also says in Scripture that God is sovereign over all things. There's a, there's a couple things I want to make very clear about this sermon. This sermon is not, and I'm not, and I hope I don't communicate this, and if I do, I ask forgiveness. This sermon I do not want to convey to any of you. Just get over it. It's life. It's the way it is. Deal with it. That's the last thing I want us to hear. 
I also don't want us to hear this either. Just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, try harder, and deal with and get over with. Or this one, why are you complaining? There's a lot more people that suffer way worse than you do. Quit your griping and get up. I hope that doesn't come across. And the last thing is I sure don't want any of the scriptures we look at today be like those scriptures when you're going through hard times and you hear people say many times very well-meaning believers, brothers and sisters say, well, God works out all things for the good who love them. Or God's great, great plans for you. Or Jesus loves you. Even though those are true, so much of the time when we hear that, when we're going through the winter seasons of our life, we want to tell that person, go kiss, go kiss a truck. We don't want to hear it. And unfortunately, those are communicated at the wrong time. I don't want us to hear that. Scripture, the truth at times can hurt. But that's when we've got to be willing to stand up under the light of Christ and allow him to shine in our lives and our hearts, even in loss, even in grief even in pain, and let him sustain us, even if we do not have an answer, even if we do not know why. How does Solomon conclude? Verse 9. Look at what Solomon says. What does the worker gain from his struggles? I've seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I love these verses, and we can preach on several sermons here, just in these three verses. But look at what he says. What does the worker gain from his struggles? Life is hard. And then he reminds his reader because he himself remembers, I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam. That is all of us. And it bounces us back to Genesis chapter 1. And we talked about it about two months ago. All of us were created in God's image, both male and female. We were created to have dominion and to be stewards and have authority over the earth. And we were created in his dear image to be image bearers of the one and only true living God. So any reader, when they read this, it should remind us, oh man, I'm created in God's image. And I'm precious and I'm special and I'm unique. Yet at the same time, we have fallen into sin and we're sinners born dead. And we're lost and we're in great need of a Savior. And then right here in verse 11, it says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. Another word for appropriate is beautiful. Now, at times I ask, how in the world can Solomon say that God makes everything beautiful with all the wickedness, sin, injustice, idolatry, adultery, hate in the world? How can that be? And as I pondered this verse all week long, it's caused me to think, no, no, Doug, you live in the here, not yet. One day Jesus will return and he'll stand on this earth and he'll draw, he will call everything to account, and he will make everything right. 
And this verse here is a declaration also too of the future when he restores all things under his feet and his authority. Verse 11, the second half of verse 11, this is an incredible gospel conversation encouragement right here. It says, he has also put eternity in their hearts. All of us have been created with what many people call a God vacuum in our heart. We were created for relationship, first and foremost with our Heavenly Father through Jesus. Number two, with one another as brothers and sisters, as part of the body of Christ. Every human that's been created is created in God's dear image, and he longs for everyone to be saved. And there's this deep yearning in the heart of every human for relationship, for intimacy, for love, for purpose, for vision. And that is only found in Christ Jesus, no one else. So as we go about our days with our coworkers, with our friends, with our families, with our neighbors, with our bosses, with those who work with us or who work for us, God has uniquely created them. They're special. And he's calling each and every one of us to shine the light and love of Jesus in their lives. God has placed eternity in the hearts of every man and woman. And they might not know it, but they are deeply loved by our Heavenly Father. And he longs to have fellowship with them. And he's calling all of us to show his light and his love to them. Verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. Woo! John Cougar Mellencamp put that in one of his CD covers. And that's why I told my brother in high school, man, look at this. He's a believer. And he's like, no, he's not. That verse can easily be translated and go out and eat, drink, and, have, and be merry and have fun. Sin recklessly. I was like, no. This verse taken out of context, whoo, license to sin. Is it not? But even in Solomon's great despair as an old man, he follows it with this. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. Taking that in the context of all of Scripture, every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. Everything that you have is a gift from our Heavenly Father. We don't deserve it, and we haven't earned it. Verse 14, I know that everything God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. Back to the seasons of life. Even the seasons, the winter seasons, when we go through loss and suffering and trials and tribulations, God is so sovereign and so good and so powerful. He works in those situations so that we would stand in awe of him. It's all about Jesus. It's all for his glory. And I don't know how he does it. I don't know why he permits evil. It's a question I still have. And there are the Christian answers. Well, God is good. No. There are times and there are seasons in life when we won't get an answer. If you read the book of Job, he lost everything. 
He himself was suffering with a horrible sickness, and his best friends, quote-unquote, came to him, and they began to accuse him, saying, well, you're suffering like this because you've sinned, and God is punishing you for your sin, which was not true. And Job complained, and he complained, and he complained, and God eventually showed up. And did you realize that God did not answer a single one of Job's questions or complaints? God answered Job. But he didn't answer Job's questions. And when Job saw God and when he heard God, he bowed the knee and worshipped. Job even told his wife when she said, just curse God and die. And he said, even though he slay me, I will yet worship him. And as Solomon concludes here, Whatever is has already been, and whatever will be already is. However, God seeks justice for the persecuted. That last phrase encourages me greatly because when we go through suffering, when we go through trials, when we walk in darkness, when we walk through valleys, when we walk through deserts, and everything is cold and dark and dry, and we truly have loss. A loss of a job, of a loved one, of a friend, of relationships. Loss even in feeling like we've lost our relationship with God. God is good and He is just and He is faithful. To close, I want to share a couple stories real quick. And time has escaped. My favorite Bible character is Joseph. Jesus, please forgive me. My favorite Bible character is Joseph. Joseph was the second youngest of 12 brothers. For almost 12, 13 years, he was the youngest brother. He was the favored son, so he had 10 older brothers that despised him, that hated him, that probably beat the snot out of him, rejected him, and here he is, the, the, the baby. I had one older brother and he beat me up, and he teased me, and he tickled me till I cried, and I hated my older brother for a while. I couldn't imagine having ten of those. And then your dad dotes on you more than everybody else, and so they really hate and despise you. His mother, because there were four wives, his mother had his baby brother, and she died in childbirth. So now he has a baby brother, almost ten years younger. He has no mother. His dad still dotes on him, and he's the despised one. He's a little bit arrogant, but there's no record in Scripture that says he was this arrogant, self-centered, self-righteous, huge sinner. But he was a sinner just like me and you. And you guys, if you know the story, you know the story. What did his brothers do? They threw him in a pit. They planned to kill him. They then sold him off to slavery. He was enslaved for, they believe, at least 13 years. So here we have this young man. He's 15, 16 years old when he sold into slavery, taken to a foreign country. A lot of us have lived overseas and in other countries. You know what it's like to be a foreigner. How about being a slave during that time? He's falsely accused for doing something that he never did, sleeping with his master's wife. How many here have been falsely accused of doing something and you were innocent? 
How does it feel? I hate being falsely accused. That's my, when Christy and I get in big arguments, that's my biggest go-to. You're accusing me falsely. I didn't mean. I didn't do. If you want to see someone's dander get up, falsely accuse somebody. He is falsely accused, and he's thrown in prison for a couple years where he is forgotten. Have you ever been forgotten? Have you ever been thrown in prison and you were innocent? Did you ever get spanked when you were a kid and you were innocent? Or gotten in trouble and you were innocent? How does it feel? Where's that inner injustice that just raises up where it's like, not fair? And here Joseph is in prison in another country. He's not seen his father for over a dozen years. Completely and utterly. If there's anyone in Scripture who has a right to stand up and to clench his fist at God saying, this is not fair, it would be Joseph. It would be him. His brothers show up. Well, even before that, he becomes prime minister of Egypt. His brothers eventually show up years later because there's this horrible famine. Joseph is married. He has two children, two boys. And the names he gives his two boys, it's in Genesis 41. And it's, Ben, it's not going to be on here. I was thinking about this during worship, so I apologize. But I want to read. He named them Manasseh and Ephraim. The name of Manasseh is this. God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And that's not like, oh, forgetting they're nothing. But it's God brought healing to Joseph in his heart and his soul as he thought about his brothers. And then the name of Ephraim, which I can't pronounce in English, is God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. After his brothers come back to Egypt and they're restored, his brothers were in utter grief for what they did to him, how they treated him, how they sold him off to slavery. But God had done so much work in Joseph's life while a slave and while in prison. And when you read Joseph's life from Genesis 37 to 50, it'll say time after time after time again, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was with Joseph. And I know Joseph struggled through many winter seasons, even though he is a young man, with the loss and the anger and the unforgiveness and the bitterness and the if only's this and if only's that. And probably the complaining, God, I've lost everything. I've lost my father. I've lost my land. I've lost my family. I'm all alone in this country. Yet the Lord was with him, touching him, restoring him, healing him, encouraging him, giving him his perspective about life and all that was going on. So that when he's finally reconciled with his brothers and his brothers are utterly grieved for what's going on, look at what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 20. Starting in verse 9, Joseph says to his brothers, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. I hate winter seasons in my life. And Dick, do you mind coming up, please? I hate the times of trial, tribulation, Seasons where I feel lost, where I feel dry, 
depressed, discouraged. I still struggle somewhat being gone from Mexico. I love to reminisce about the past. My dad, his one-year anniversary of dying is coming up here in three weeks. How's Thanksgiving going to be for our family? That's when he died. Loss. We can choose to go bitter, angry. We can consume ourselves with ourselves and our feelings. We can become so self-focused and self-centered. Or we can do this. We can recognize that there will be lost, hurt, and pain in our lives. That's an important step. We also can recognize that there are benefits that God will do in our lives through that loss. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we will reap a harvest if we do not give up from doing good. Peter tells us, do not be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. But as Matthew told us earlier, we grieve, and when we grieve, we should grieve, but we don't grieve like the world without hope. We have hope, who is Christ himself, the hope of glory. Paul says, I forget what is behind me to press on. So here's my encouragement to you, and I want all of us to close your eyes. These will be up on the screen if you want to look at them, but I prefer you just close your eyes. We're going to spend the time, just a moment of silence and prayer. Listening to the Holy Spirit. One of my first questions to you is this. How has God been speaking to you this morning? How do we deal with our grief, with loss, with the trials and tribulations in life? The first thing we must do is we must listen to Holy Spirit. What is He telling you? Number two, it's just important to acknowledge your loss. Many times we try to stuff it, ignore it. We try to forget it, but that's impossible. The best thing to do is to acknowledge it. Lord Jesus, I am. Heavenly Father, I feel. Number three, give your loss to Jesus. Tell him out loud, Jesus, this is what is happening to me right now. And tell him. Be honest, he already knows. After you tell them, be willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads, however he leads. And do not make a single contract with him. What I mean is don't promise him anything. You're not going to be able to fulfill it. But too many, too many of us will tell Jesus, if you only do this for me, I promise I will. Don't make a contract with God. Just surrender. Let him do. All he wants is a willing heart. Finally, and this is a day-by-day decision, surround yourself with other brothers and sisters 
who can walk with you and encourage you, even call you on the carpet when you're wrong, speaking truth to you. If you are going through loss or grief or trials today, and we did this last week, I just want you to stand up. If you are in a winter season of life right now, stand up. I would love to pray with you. We would love to pray with you. It could be sickness. It could be financial. It could be relational. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for this incredible day. Lord, I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters who are here this morning. And Jesus, I praise you. You are the good shepherd. You know exactly what each and every one of us are going through. The trials we're in, the loss we face, the tribulations. Lord, may we recognize our condition. May we acknowledge it and may we surrender wholeheartedly to you. And Lord, for each of my brothers and sisters who are standing up now, encourage them, strengthen them, comfort them. May they not only have ears to hear and eyes to see, but may they take that next step to follow you and allow you to bring the strength and healing in their lives now. And we ask these things in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand as we close.